Hi, I'm Warren from Phoenix, Arizona. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like you and me. If you'd like to donate to support the show, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, I'm Jesse Thorne, and this is The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest on the program, Alan Zweibel, is a legend of comedy writing, having been... Uh, <laughs> don't laugh at that. It's true. I, I just To be described as such um, is uh, uh, both uh, an honor and um, a source of humor to me. Okay, good. <laughs> okay. Well, you were not only an original writer on Saturday Night Live and uh, co-creator of the groundbreaking uh, meta-sitcom It's Gary Shandling's Show... Um, you've also won, uh, Tony is, uh, uh, a collaborator with Billy Crystal on Broadway. You won several Emmys, uh, nominated for several more, and you've written a novel, a book of memoir, a number of plays, and now clothing optional and other ways to read these stories, a collection of short humorous pieces, both nonfiction, fiction, dialogues, and et cetera. Uh, Alan, welcome to the Sandy Young America. Thanks for having me here. I want to talk a little bit about the beginning of your career first. You started out as a joke writer. Did you always imagine yourself as a comedy writer when you were, say, a kid? It sounds like such a cliche at this point, but as a little boy, I'd watch the old Dick Van Dyke show. And you wanted to be married to Mary Tyler Moore? I wanted to be married to Mary Tyler Moore. I wanted to have a house in New Rochelle. I wanted to have a kid. And uh, I wanted to spend my days lying on a couch and joking around with Buddy and Sally. So I went, yeah, let's go for that. As a matter of fact, this very morning, I spent two hours with Dick Van Dyke. Wow. Uh, yeah. Uh, our agents are uh, the same people, and they put us together, and I spent some time with him. And my God, it was memorable. What was it like to meet him? Well, he's Dick Van Dyke. He's, um, yeah. he's <laughs> I was with Dick Van Dyke. You know, he's older. You know, I, I, I would suggest he doesn't trip over the ottoman uh, on purpose anymore. You right. know, um, <laughs> it, it, perhaps it would be involuntary, uh, but um, it's it, it's definitely him. It's definitely his voice, and there's still a vibrance and a vitality to him that it, it just belies his uh, his years. It's um, he's 142 now, and, right? Uh, and uh, <laughs> no, and it was just he just made me laugh and. He was recounting stories from um, anecdotes from um, his past, and I was just on the edge of my seat. It was just wonderful. Well, let's get back to your your career. You went no, to I college. I want to talk about Dick Van Dyke some more. Well, okay, this show is okay, mostly fine. about Dick Van Dyke. Oh, no, okay. Oh, so we'll get back to Dick Van Dyke. I had okay. planned this. I had planned this interview as just a break from the Dick Van Dyke <laughs> okay, stuff. I see. So um, uh, you graduated from college. You were faced with two choices. One of them was law school. One of them was pursuing the entertainment industry. Well, well, yeah. Let me just collabor- uh, collaborate. Let me clarify that for a moment. Sure. Um, when you say I was presented with two 
choices that meant that i had the choice right yeah no, it this, wasn't that someone presented them to you no 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 in this particular case the law schools uh, unanimous unanimously said uh, no you're going to go into comedy writing they looked at my board scores <laughs> and said this is ridiculous so um yeah i mean i entertained the the thought of becoming a lawyer only because i didn't know how to become a comedy writer uh, especially back then there was no prescribed curriculum there was no you know hey, take these courses and you get a degree and take it to Norman Lear and say, I'm ready. It just didn't work that way. So um, it, it was a little scary going into the unknown, but this was my passion. And when I was in college, um, I wrote jokes and I sent them into Johnny Carson, who was the host of The Tonight Show at the time. Dick Cavett had a show, sent some things to Mad Magazine. So the passion was there for that. It's just I didn't know if I was going about it the right way. Did you ever hear back from any of those? Yeah, I did. I got some rejection letters that I still have in a huge folder at home. Um, <laughs> they were encouraging rejection letters, though. And um, uh, what was very encouraging, though, even as when I was in college, I'd send jokes into, like I say, Cavett or The Tonight Show, and I'd watch the monologues, and my jokes were real close to being what they were saying. So at least it meant, well... I'm in the neighborhood, you know, so um, I use that as uh, encouragement. There, there's a piece in your book that is uh, a dialogue between an aspiring comedy writer and a, a, a veteran Borscht Belt comic. Um, was that something that actually happened to you, or, or how did you imagine it? Well, with that, that piece in particular is called Comic Dialogue, and what that is is I wrote for about 100 stand-up comedians, Believe it or not, there were that many around back then who were all these known names. They were semi-names. They were unknown comedians uh, who were opening acts for big stars. And what I did was, in that particular piece, Comic Dialogue, I took all the comedians that I wrote for and just sort of melded them into one character. And Comic Dialogue is four conversations that I had with this guy over a 10-year period of time. And it's as the kid's career progresses, the comic sort of wanes and, and nosedives to the point where the kid is in a position to help the comedian. And um, it's very autobiographical. It's me and um, a particular comic that I wrote for back then. However, the stories, the little anecdotes within comic dialogue is a little bit from this guy. A little, I can footnote it and tell you, who is Freddie Roman? Who's Corbett Monica? Who's Rodney Dangerfield? Who are those? You know, um, those incidences. I fictionalized them, but they were inspired by real events from real comedians. The character in that piece um, mentions uh, who's who's essentially you mentions his hero being Woody Allen, who who was a comedian who bridged the worlds of. Um, jokes in the 1960s and uh, uh, stand-up comedy and sort of the future of comedy in the 1970s. Were you thinking about what was next in comedy when you were writing joke jokes? Uh, absolutely. Um, Woody Allen was my idol, and he was, I think, everyone my age back then. Uh, he was an incredible influence. Okay, Yeah, Robert Klein was. I mean, there were people who were, depending upon your style and... Um, especially for comics, you know. Um, but as a writer, Woody Allen for me was, um, he was the ultimate. And when I saw what he was doing, both in his stand-ups and in his early movies, uh, and here I am, I'm in the Catskill Mountains writing wife jokes for guys who are twice my age, I knew that it was um, 
not for me, or at least my future wasn't there. So there were two clubs in New York City at the time. There was Catch a Rising Star and the Improvisation, and that was the new Catskills. That was the new breeding ground. That's where Robert Klein, Lily Tomlin, uh, Bette Midler, Richard Park, they came through these clubs, okay? David Steinberg, uh, David Brennan was there. And so what I did was I took all the jokes that these comedians wouldn't buy from me because it was... Um, uh, not for their audience, if you will. And um, I made it into a stand-up act for myself with the hopes that somebody would come in, like a manager, an agent, you know, those were the kinds of people that were hanging out at these clubs, uh, the hopes that one of them would give me a job as a TV writer. And one night, Lorne Michaels came in, and um, he liked my material. He asked to see more, and I had a meeting with him. And... Um, Ultimately, the jokes that I showed him, there was about 1,100 of them in a big bound book that I had. Uh, he gave me a job on this new show that was going to premiere in the fall called Saturday Night Live. You you started as an apprentice writer on the show. Yeah. When the show started up, were you intimidated by the fact that all these people that you were working with came from these, uh, came from the Second City or came from the National Lampoon? these kind of institutions that already had this voice that you were talking about. And here, here you are coming off the, the stand-up stage that you, you know, you hadn't even been that committed to. Well, I, I, <laughs> I, I was a little intimidated because, um, these guys had made their bones elsewhere. I felt that I hadn't, at least not in the vein that this show was going to go. Lorne hired me very much, uh, initially for my joke writing ability. There was weekend update that I was contributed to, I wrote commercial parodies, and I slowly got into the flow of things. That all being said, I had a feeling, despite my insecurity and my intimidation, you know, Michael O'Donoghue to me was uh, a god, but at the same time, um, I had never met anybody like him. Did Nobody like him had crossed my path before. Um, the energy that was there, Lorne, Chevy, and Michael, those, that was like my triumvirate in a way. Um, they were the architects of the show, with, oh. with Lorne leading the way, obviously. O'Donoghue's a name that, that might not be from, as familiar to people. He was, uh, uh, he was a writer for the National Lampoon. I think he was one of the founders, if I'm yeah, not mistaken. Yeah, and, ha- and had a reputation for developing a, a very particular comic style that uh, uh, was both satirical and kind of super intense and brutal. Well, Michael... Um, Back then, I mean, I had never seen anybody like him. We ended up becoming good friends. But you could never find more two polar opposites. I mean, here I am, this big Jew from Long Island who's a joke writer. And he founded the Lampoon. He used to wear antique clothing. Um, He used to hold his cigarette between the wrong fingers. And there was something very, very, um, oh, gee, uh, you know, Algonquin-y about him, okay? And, and, and some of the pieces that he wrote for Saturday Night Live early on had their own style to them. A, a Citizen Kane sketch, a, a very memorable Star Trek sketch. And um, he, he could be brutally funny, but the word brutal was um, very much a signature. He um, Nothing was sacred, but he was incredibly smart. Incredibly smart. You buddied up very early on with uh, Gilda Radner, with whom you... 
uh, went on to uh, write and develop many of her um, yeah. signature pieces on the show. H- how did the two of you uh, become friends? Well, we became friends very early on because we were both intimidated by where we were. <laughs> but it, it was it was like two kids like huddling in a corner, and um, she. Um, be- I was just thrilled that somebody was talking to me, and I thought she was adorable and made me laugh so much. Um, I had seen her in the Lampoon show. I heard about her, and when I saw her in the, in the Lampoon show, I, I just fell in love. I, I nobody liked it made me laugh so much, and so when, when we started Saturday Night Live. We gravitated toward each other. I needed somebody to say my words. She needed somebody to write words for her. And there was a commonality there in terms of, uh, well, I, I guess the way we looked at the world. We made each other laugh. And uh, most everything that we did was done over dinner in, in some restaurant somewhere. It was this um, uh, platonic friendship that just kept on fed off. Of, we fed off of each other. We I remember early on, we were on a subway on our way to a, um, some. I guess we were going to have some speech that we were given at Queens College. And we were on the subway and we got very excited about an idea that we wanted to do and missed the stop and, you know, was an hour late by the time we got to <laughs> Queens College. We were just so excited to be doing what we were doing and to be doing it with each other. It was a very, very eccentric, uh, probably neurotic relationship, but it would... What came out of it was stuff that made the two of us laugh, and, um, you know, we just followed it. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the legendary comedy writer Alan Zweibel. We'll have more with Alan in just a minute when we come back. Production of The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. Hi, it's me, Jesse. If you're interested in reaching the Sound of Young America's highly literate, intelligent, and awesome audience, you can use the medium of underwriting. Support the Sound of Young America, and we'll thank you by sharing your message with our thousands of listeners, both here on the podcast, on the radio show, and on our website. If you'd like more information about underwriting on the Sound of Young America, drop me a line at jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. That's jesse at MaximumFun.org. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. Let's get back to my interview with the legendary comedy writer, Alan Zweibel. Let's talk for a second about Weekend Update. You were contributing extensively to Weekend Update right from the beginning, and as you alluded, you were sort of brought on in part because that was the jokiest part of the show, and uh, you had such extensive background as a joke writer. Chevy Chase had originally come onto the show, if I'm not mistaken, as a writer and ended up hosting this uh, hosting this segment of the show, which really um, was one of the first things on Saturday Night Live that really uh, exploded. Did that surprise you? Did you expect this this part of the show to become such a huge thing? I, I, I'd be a liar if I thought that any part of the show or the show itself would have ended up becoming a phenomenon or lasting 34 years that being said the show became our lives very very quickly it was fun to be there marilyn miller used to go around saying hey kids let's put on a show and it became a playground so it sort of made sense that chevy would be the first to emerge 
because he was using his own name. I'm Chevy Chase and you're not. Right. And it was in one, straight to the camera. So he had this feature every week, whether it started out being four minutes long and then expanded to eight, it, uh, or not, however long it was, he was the star of this segment. If Even if there were other people on, Emily Latella or other little characters that people did, it was Chevy's, um, this was his forum. And um, it made perfect sense. I mean, he was real funny and real good-looking. There was this matinee kind of idle-looking guy, and he was a little naughty in his preppy uh, kind of way. And um, when it happened, it made sense that it would be him you know, at that particular time. Saturday Night Live uh, was such an extraordinary success right from, right from the very start, or when I say right from the very start, right from a few months in, um, and so quickly became a generational touchstone that it has this story of kind of going crazy and, and running off the rails a little bit that I think um, mirrors what a lot of people think about the 70s and the late 70s especially. Um, I, I wonder if you perceive it that way, having been inside and especially having been inside during that during that crucial first period that ran from the, the birth of the show to, to uh, 1980 or so when most of the uh, original folks who were involved left. There was a certain recklessness about it, but it was controlled. We had to do a show. 11.30, you better have a, something to say because you're going to go on television. That being said... It you know look we were all members uh, of the same generation same generation that our audience was and um, we couldn't do everything with total abandon otherwise nothing would get done that all being said um, you know uh, we fed off each other that way and um, there were some extremes you know what I mean you know you, you, the process itself was very very while fun intense. You know, and um, you'd stay up all night Tuesday night because read through was on Wednesday, and um, you wanted your sketch to to get on the air. You wanted to be read by the funniest people you thought of in the cast to read it, and it became a little bit um, competitive uh, as the years the years that I was there went on, and that competition probably made the show better, but at the same time. It wasn't as, um, I wouldn't say it wasn't as collaborative as it was at the beginning, because it still was, but at the same time, it became a little bit more intense. Most of the uh, original folks uh, behind Saturday Night Live left in, in 1980. You went on to create uh, a sitcom called It's Gary Shandling's Show that was um, groundbreaking in a lot of different ways for for folks who... Uh, either don't remember it or, or uh, didn't see it at the time or during its run at the beginning of the uh, Fox network. It was a, essentially a, a sitcom built around Gary Shandling, the stand-up comic, in which uh, he would introduce the show directly to the audience. And from time to time, the actors on the show would not only directly address the audience, but di- address each other in the context of putting on a show and um, also... Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it was it, it, it's quite a free for all in, in a lot of ways. Um, tell me a little bit about where that idea com- came from and how you and Gary Shanley came together to make that. For for me, it was like lightning striking again in terms of having a, a, a kindred spirit 
like Gilda was, when I met Gary, um, we spoke about this kind of show. He had the idea of of him playing uh, himself and talking to camera. I was married and I had a, a child already, maybe even two at this point, and I had had an idea uh, about a comedy writer, as if Dick Van Dyke spoke to camera. So we spoke, and there's a sort of a blend of the two ideas. We paid homage to George Burns and anybody else who broke the fourth wall. We knew we were doing that. We knew that that wasn't reinventing the wheel. But what happened was that the show very quickly evolved past just breaking the fourth wall. It, it, it became more like a play. What we would do is say, okay, an ordinary situation comedy would dissolve from one scene to another here. Let's not do that. Let's just have Gary say, okay, here's where we are in the story. It's two days later, and now I have to deal with this car. <laughs> okay? So it was there was an Our Townish kind of thing going on with it, and we played with a lot of what were then the conventional situation comedy sort of techniques. Okay? So um, it became a little fun in its theatrics. You also took a step beyond what had gone on before. I mean... Um... Uh, George Burns, for example, is is the protagonist of the show, sort of n- essentially narrating the show, guiding the audience right. through it. Whereas I was just watching an It's Gary Shandling show the other day, which I there was a scene in which I, uh, Gary and a lady were going out on a date, and so they walked off of the stage of Gary's house, sat in a tiny car. Um, and drove it o- across the soundstage yes, exactly over right. to the other we, stage. We would drive from one set to the other, but, and we would make up our own rules, and we would then um, have to live with those rules, what you could and couldn't do. And we had decided very early on, we, we did a, a parody of The Graduate, which was like the fourth or fifth show that we ever did, and um, we, we got Gary a little car, a little golf cart that looked like a car. It, it had that kind of body on it. And when he went on the date with uh, Elaine uh, Robinson, who was the, uh, you know, the girlfriend in The, in, in the Graduate, uh, you know, Mrs. Robinson's daughter, um, w- that was a very important show for us because we found that that we can extend beyond the fourth wall. We can drive from set to set and keep our reality. It would be funny it's not like, yeah, we were breaking rules, but we were making new rules and abiding by them. And um, uh, it, it was, you know, we acknowledged that the audience was there, you know. And what we did find, as it is with any show, that the shows that were most successful were the ones that came out of character and story. And then you put the device on it, as opposed to the ones that we did that were not successful were ones where they were more device-driven, but there was no substance to it. So it was just a hat full of tricks as opposed to a story that you were interested in that just happened to have tricks you know, to help uh, express the story. One last question about the show. It, it has one of the all-time great themes of any sitcom. It, it does the, the job of setting the scene which is, uh, or, or establishing the situation, which is the job of uh, a sitcom's theme. But it does so um, in a completely ridiculous way. Tell me, where did that come from? Gary and I wrote that song. It was Gary's idea for the song. Gary wanted to do a theme song about the theme song, a theme song that was very self-conscious that what it was and what its purpose was. And we were, I said, yeah, that's a great idea. We were literally in an elevator. 
and he started saying, uh, this is the theme to Gary's show, the opening theme to Gary's show. I said, Gary called me up and asked if I would write his theme song. I don't know who said, uh, I'm almost halfway finished. How do you like it so far? How do you like the theme to Gary's show? Okay. And then I think he said, this is the theme to Gary's show, the opening theme to Gary's show. This is the music that you hear. I wrote that when you hear the credits. I'm almost to the part where I start to whistle. <laughs> <laughs> and then we'll watch it's Gary Shandling's show. Then we both started whistling. And, and then at the end, I think the tag was, this was the theme to Gary Shandling's show. By the time the elevator got to the lobby, we had a theme song, okay? It was nuts. It made no sense whatsoever, but we were giggling like, like these idiots. And I remember when we recorded it, a guy named Joey Carbone wrote the music for it. And we went to some place in the valley in the middle of the summer because it was right before the TV season was the premiere. And some guy with a motorcycle came up and they, they gave him some money and they had him sing these lyrics. <laughs> and he did maybe two takes. And we went perfect. And he looked at us like he was stealing our money. Going, this is the stupidest <laughs> thing I've ever heard. The question I was about to ask is, do you write differently for the page? But the, uh, obviously, the mechanics are different. But do you find yourself writing differently for the page thematically? Do you find that uh, writing for the page is a... Uh, you write about different things than you would write for the screen? Yeah, I think so. Because, um, you know, it's not so much the subject matter, although... It's about how you're going to approach the subject matter because you can get more internal. When you write for the stage or, or, or television or movies, um, a lot can be said just by looking at a person to see the way they're dressed, to see the way their mannerisms are, see the way they walk. But when you write for the page, you have to describe all that. So there's something about the internal life of a character that you can delve into it's not as immediate as it is seeing the character on the screen, but you can fall inside his head a little bit. So there are certain ideas that may in and of themselves be softer ideas or need the time to be nurtured, uh, you know, and um, you can take the time to indulge. You, you're describing uh, the inner life of a character. Uh, a number of the pieces in the book are first person. Are there things about yourself that you're able to express much better uh, through this form than than you are on the screen? Yeah, I mean, in Clothing Optional, there are stories in there. Um, there's a, a eulogy of sorts that were written that I wrote for Herb Sargent. And it was a very um, emotional piece for me to write because I had to recount the uh, first time I met the guy, saw him, and ultimately what he represented to me through the years. And, you know, to say that Herb Sargent, as it says in the piece, you know, represented New York, a black and white version of New York uh, that was the kind of TV that I grew up wanting to write for. I don't know how you say that, even through the mouth of a character, without it sounding staunch, you know, because people don't talk that way. So, But there's something about when you read it, it's you forgive it because it... Um, it describes somebody who you care for, and you can tell uh, it's written with a certain reverence. Let me ask you for a second about the, the final stop on the, uh, the Comedy Nerds uh, trip through your career, um, which is that you have a producer's credit on Curb Your Enthusiasm, 
Now, I understand that you fell in with this program by virtue of having an office nearby Larry David. <laughs> Larry David is one of my oldest friends in the world. We've known each other since 1973. All through the years, like all writers do, you help each other. You become sounding boards for each other. How does this sound? Because like writing, especially when you're not on a TV show, which is very, very collaborative and very social, you, you look for some sort of uh, affirmation, you know, so you call up a buddy. And Larry and I have done that forever through the years. Um, my involvement with Curb Your Enthusiasm was 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 very much about geography. Uh, we shared offices, and uh, he felt uh, and uh, you know he felt free to come in, open my door. How about this? How about that? And I was always there because that's what we do for each other. Just like I would bounce things off of him. Many times I, when I was doing Scary Shandling show, and um, when I was writing this play called Bunny Bunny about my relationship with me and Gilda, I, I did the same thing with Larry. And um, I think at one point Larry felt guilty. <laughs> so, <laughs> so <laughs> he said, "Give yourself a title. I'll give you some money, so I won't feel so bad opening this door." <laughs> so basically, that show is 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 it's Larry. There's nobody else who can do that show but Larry. Somebody like myself can suggest things and, you know, it, it, could, it could work, you know, but it's Larry and he feels comfortable with certain people. And, you know, if you capture his sensibility, which is not hard for me because I've known him forever, um, you know, you can contribute, but it's Larry. There's this kind of goofy, old-timey, farcical part of that show that just that never ceases to amaze and delight me. Well, you know, it's look just the choice of that theme music and um, uh, and, and Larry as a character. You got to understand that we all knew that Larry was okay, different. <laughs> okay, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean that in the most loving, reverential way. I mean, we knew from back in the comedy clubs, he was the guy that all of us sat in the back of the room watching he would get on stage with, with the wire rim glasses and he, he looked like larry fine from the three stooges he had like <laughs> brillo hair you know and wear a green army jacket and um he'd sing songs about living in staten island he would just have uh, he, he would march around and he had these concepts that were from a different plan you know there are many times you'd see a comedian or if you're a writer you'll see another writer work okay and you go damn i should have thought of that god why didn't i see that? i could have done that i could have done it better damn it i could have done it my way larry there was never that feeling for me because i felt he was on a different plane than i was <laughs> so i just i felt the same thing about danny Aykroyd when we were doing saturday night live dan shows up one day and he writes bassomatic which is uh a, this blended that he put a, a, a bass in <laughs> Grounded up, and he had Lorraine Newman drink it, saying, "Oh, that's great bass." So now, if I you put a gun to my head, and I would, if it lived to be a thousand, I don't think I would have thought of, "Oh, let's you know, let's drink a fish." I just didn't work, you know. And I, Larry's the same way. Oh, Donnie was the same way for me. Well, Alan, thank you for taking all this time to be on the Sound of Young America. It was so fun to have you. Alan Zweibel was an original writer for Saturday Night Live, among his many other television credits. His brand new book of short writings is called Clothing Optional. 
That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I've been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our theme music written and performed by Dan Grayson with help from myself, interstitial music provided by Dan Wally. This week's interview was edited by Nick White. We're now bidding a fond adieu to our, what is this, fall winter intern, Casey O'Brien. Great work, Casey. I'm just looking over my shoulder to see if he's wearing his headphones so he can hear me say this. Great work, Casey. Um, ah, if only all interns could be this great. Most of our ones so far have been. I'm not intending that as a put down to our past interns. Um, if you have thoughts about the show, you can always, always email me directly. Jesse, J-E-S-S-E at MaximumFun.org. Uh, that's jesse at maximumfun.org or you can post on our forums or you know whatever you want to do whatever you want to do okay uh, we'll see you next time on the sound of young america